Hello, and welcome to Locutors of Trek, the podcast where we talk about the people, places, and things of Star Trek. So, replicate yourself a Romulan ale or your synthesis selection of choice and join us far beyond the stars. Locutors of Trek. Program initiated. Enter when ready. This is our inaugural flight, our pilot episode, our maiden our voyage. Our first contact. Our first contact. Hailing frequencies open. My name is Dave. And I'm Devin. And this podcast is sort of born from the Genesis planet of our own original project together, a band that we call Plain Simple Tailors. It, it's a subtle a reference. It's a Star Trek. Now, our angle of approach is uh, going to be a little bit, hopefully, unique among Trek podcasts. Mm -hmm. We're trying to take a theme-laden or motif-laden approach, uh, and that kind of follows the pattern of the conversations we tend to have about Trek and Trek-related material. And what that really means is that we'll tend to talk about a particular theme as it Mm. relates to Star Trek, and then we'll end up constellating episodes kind of along that line, and we may stray into different subtopics or that sort of thing, but we'll try and hold as true to that original theme while traveling whichever terrain of Trek we need to, to kind of grab materials from as we go along. This episode's theme is communication. Perhaps one of the more broad themes we'll tackle with an episode. Our next episode will be on time travel. <laughs> no, we are kind of stuck in a time We're stuck loop in a right time loop right now. This is not our first attempt at this. And this is attempt N. This is the podcast to make the sanest men go mad. Exactly. <laughs> the podcast never ends. <laughs> uh, or never begins. We can't tell which. We've had some technical difficulties up till now. But we've got them sorted. Where's the chief when you need him? Exactly. And, you know, I, one of the other things we're planning to do, and I think Davin can tell you more about this, uh, is we're going to try and break up the discussion of our main topic with, uh, you know, kind of punctuated aside. Yeah. Some of these will be fun, at least for us. We hope so. <laughs> Specify parameters. We'll have an ever-expanding, ever-evolving array of segments from what-ifs to top five lists. We'll do reviews of checking other media. Comic books, books, games. We'll have a segment called The Trouble with Trivia. Oh, no. (laughs) Come on, that's going to be fun for me. (laughs) You're exercising humility for me. (laughs) I'm going to teach a course from my two semesters at the Ferengi School of Business called Avoiding Eternal Destitution for Humans. I require this knowledge. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as my only student, you'll get my full attention. Oh, excellent. That'll be five slips. Uh, five slips. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that That's later. That's an opening offer. <laughs> uh, we're going to get into the weeds on some of the technical aspects of Star Trek, some oh, of yeah. the technology and science, um, despite our own technical dysfunction. In theory, we're great at that. <laughs> <laughs> Those who can't do, teach. See? As Dave said, we're a band. So we're going to play some Trek-themed originals for you guys, as well as some Fontaine standards. And also play a little game we like to call Rename Simple Tailors. Oh, this is a fun game. That's a very fun game. Would you like to go first, Dave? Sure. Uh, so, you know, we, we floated a bunch of things before we settled on, you know, the subtlest of subtle cuts, plain simple tailors. Deep. 
at first I was sort of for being, you know, out front and center and uh, putting both our trivia knowledge and our love of Shakespeare in the original Klingon in the forefront. And then we should just call ourselves Borcha and the Negvars and, you know, get costumes, do the whole sort of like guar end of things and just be a traveling group who play Klingon opera and recite Shakespeare in the original Klingon. I'm all for it. I would be a Negvar to your Borcha. In a heartbeat, Dave. Kapla! Okay, how about we do a percussion-style band, like the like the Blue Man Group? Love it. But we can't call ourselves the Blue Man Group. <laughs> no, they'll sue us into oblivion. <laughs> <laughs> the Drumheads. Oh. And we call our first album, Better Men Than You. <laughs> With songs like, We Are All Injured. Or stabbed by a subtle point of logic. Ooh, with a Klingon lute solo. You know, high concept percussion. Oh, yeah. High concept. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be amazing. We just have to try and sample Picard's facepalm sound. <laughs> oh, here's a good one. Okay. This will be, again, a little bit percussive, but also in a sort of like electronica vein. Mm-hmm. Uh, we could um, release We could electrify it. Album under the name of 11001001 and the subprocessing units. <laughs> Album's name, of course, is Binar Blues. Which one of us is the subprocessing unit? I'll leave that to you. <laughs> First song called Zero One. Or would it be Zero? <laughs> Second song. I think the first song should just be called Or Would It Be Zero? Perfect. Brilliant. What if we did some sort of like 80s hair metal thing? You know, you just need one powerful four-letter word. Anything that involves me with big hair, I'm, I'm, I'm into. All right. We call ourselves Tosk. Tosk! Ooh. Album, we are Tosk. We include tracks such as For the Hunt, or <laughs> I Said Nothing. Or I Cannot Discuss It. <laughs> I told them nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Some tracks are just 30 seconds of force field noise and the shuffling of feet around the uh, detention area. <laughs> Someone says, shh. That's enough out of you, Tusk. That's enough out of you, Tusk. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we, we could we could lighten it up and do a barbershop. Ooh, barbershops. Barbershops, funny you say that. We call ourselves the B-shaps. Oh, no. <laughs> and we call our first uh, album Bigger Than Emissary. No, this will be our second album. We have to hit it big first. We'll just go self-title for the first one. B-Shaps. 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 Yeah, yeah. Songs like Baby Off Starboard. Uh, <laughs> Move Along Home. Move Along Home. The second song is just The Second Shap. Excellent track. Excellent track. That's our hit. Oh, the man. Second Shap. The Second Shap. The Second Shap. It's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well... Shall we get into our theme of let's, the day? Let's get right into it. Implement the Omega Directive immediately. All other priorities have been rescinded. So we're talking about communication today. Very it's, broad. But but fundamental to how Star Trek happens, you know, from... And a podcast. Well, yeah. So I think we're sort of opposite or mm. apropos. Apropos. For our first episode. You know, without breaking the language barrier, all of... Alien contact would simply be some sort of weird text message scenario or something, or just shooting at each other, you know, without without being without able to somehow, you know, grok each other 
we're we're left in the dark and the void. Let's do our first techno babble. All right. Let's talk about communicators. Beep beep. Over to you. Over to me. Over, over to, you. to you. Over to me. Over to you. Over to me. Over. Now, did I hear that in real time, or was there a delay? Now, there's a great question, though, eh? Mm-hmm. Because you know, as soon you know, as say Riker boops his chest from the planet and right. says Riker to Picard, Picard's hearing. Riker, Riker has a strong Picard. boop. Oh, yeah, well, it's a Betty boop. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. <laughs> no don't touch that (laughs) but yeah as soon as he's talking you know it's got to be basically coming out of picard's chest so their real-time processing of that signal must be insanely fast yeah i mean the computer's definitely always listening yeah i mean you think your cell phone listens to everything you do oh man if you were to guess at what point in Picard to Riker. Mm-hmm. Is Riker hearing it? See, my my guess is that the computer there is going to have some kind of heurism that's like predictive texting. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's going to have that, you like your phone has the 10 most likely emojis you're going to put into a text message. So as soon as Picard says to Riker, yeah, it's already coming Riker up in the short Basically, Riker is the list. number one place he's going to go. <laughs> yeah. Because he's the XO of the ship, right? But... Um, Other than Picard to Mott. You don't stay that slick by accident. And I think you have to schedule with Mott. Yeah, I mean, to me, I mean, Picard to Riker would probably be the computer's first stop. So it would have that, I would assume, available and probably interrupt any other likely communication going to Riker if the captain's talking to him. I mean, I assume all that rank structure would be built into how how the logic of that communication structure would have to work. And, you know, I mean, really, basically, the only thing faster than data was the Enterprise's core computer, right? So if anything's going to do it, it's going to be able to. But mind you, they've been able to run that kind of a process since the original series. Because mm. we know they have communications shipped ashore. Now, mind you, that maybe we're just not getting shown the 0.1 second of lag that they're experiencing because, you know, that doesn't really make for such good... T- and that's not really the primary... If we were doing a show about astronauts and how far away they are from the surface of the planet that lag becomes an interesting narrative piece you know but in this kind of a setting where they're using subspace to manage all of this even you know from orbit i would assume that lag is just so inconsequential that i think it's more important in a certain sense narratively to show it in real time Mm -hmm. and that it's so seamless than to show the opposite in something that emphasizes the technological fragility of space travel, say, like, you know, an Apollo 13 type movie or something, mm-hmm. like that, right? Well, the most important technology regarding communication in Star Trek, you might say, it's not the communicator. But, Scandalous. Well, it's the first episode. We're... <laughs> we, got, we got to get the clickbait in. Yeah. <laughs> so go on with your heresy, sir. <laughs> this episode is going to be called <laughs> Communication and Clickbait. Communic- Number five will blow you away. Communicators are not the most important communication. <laughs> <laughs> and other controversial positions. The Universal Translator, Dave. Oh. Very unique to Star Trek. Well, a lot of sci fi have their version of it, of course. Sure. 
But what we learn from the DS9 episode Little Green Men is that mm-hmm. the universal translator is a small device inserted in one's ear. Yep. That allows real-time translation of whatever language is programmed into it. Yeah, one assumes, right? And seems to have some sort of adaptive capability with new languages. Yeah. So it's it's the sort of standard cyberware of the Star Trek setting. Because everybody's got one. I think they must be implanted mm-hmm. at birth, one assumes. Mm-hmm. Or somewhere close to it. Maybe once the... Well, yeah, if your developed. child is going up on a planet with You know, aliens, 12 different alien it's... species. Some of them that don't even have vocal cords that can produce... You don't want them being confused all the time. Right. Or just mixing the languages together and not speaking any language. Just well, an amalgamation of many. Yeah, I mean, you can imagine kids growing up with a sort of weird pigeon speak that they're mm. they're running around with if they wouldn't have one of these installed, right? So, that, I mean, I assume they've got to come in young, which is a different kind of picture of that cultural milieu than I think we're often used to looking at. Because we see, you know, when I think about technology and very early ages, I think of that drawer they opened in the season two episode where the Enterprise first meets the Borg. And they see that uh, infant with the beginnings of the the, the incubation uh, chamber and the beginnings of the implants already there, uh, and that's clearly horrifying to the Starfleet personnel there. But it's uh, to me it inflects the sense of what they're valuing when we know that they all have cyberware implanted in them. You know, Jordy Jordy's the most obvious person mm-hmm. to have it. You might say, but data. Well, and the data just is a big chunk of cyber. But, you know, everybody else has it in their ears. They may well, like Picard's got an artificial heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's all sorts of cyborging and biomechanical sort of life occurring, or as either as supports or as fully fledged life forms. Uh, and it seems to be that they're all on a scale of how integrated they are with the technological apparatus they've been able to develop to regulate their physiology. Uh, And it's like there's a certain line that they cross where all of a sudden the Federation folks are saying, well, that's too far. You're now taking them out of being what they were as an organism and you're making them into something different. But there's clearly lines where that's not the case. Now, the Universal Translator takes very good care of the vocal translations. Mm Mm-hmm. But that still leaves everybody talking like a dubbed movie. <laughs> I suppose because it replaces it in your ears, doesn't it? That's what I'm hoping for with the new Strange New World series. I mean, it's called Strange New Worlds. It would be very a strange new world if everyone was talking like that. Like, it would be amazing. Especially the Klingons, that would be terrifying. Oh, they just come up to you and you hear them in English, but you just see all the like crazy hardcore stuff they're actually doing. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Uh, I just want to see even a short. Uh, those Star Trek shorts they've been doing. Been Some of fun. those are really great. Oh, I love the Tribble one so much. Yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed the Tribble one. Uh, I mean, it just makes sense that they were modified for a food source. <laughs> the Federation Born pregnant. Is unwittingly the Klingon's greatest enemy. <laughs> but yeah, you know, the Universal Translator itself is, you're right, it's, it's, it's the sort of other side of the coin of the communicator. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they're really kind of tied together. Yeah, yeah. That communicator ties into the cyberware that's in the ear to hook itself in through subspace connection to the ship's computer itself, where the translation is going to, in part, take place. We assume at the same speed as, you know, Picard to Riker takes place. One of the lovely things about Star Trek as a, as a 
setting narratively, though, to me is that they've scaled that up and down. You know, when we see Uhura working to make sense of an alien signal, she's clearly leaps and bounds beyond, say, where Hoshisato would have been, but she's nowhere close to where communications on the Enterprise-D would be, where they don't even have a communications officer dedicated on the bridge. That's one of the con functions, or sometimes tactical holds on to that, or, you know, all sorts of things deal with that. Not to wash over Hoshi, though. Mm-hmm. Hoshi is awesome. Oh, one of the greatest characters in the entire Enterprise series. I love it that she doesn't enjoy space at first. She's one of two characters in Trek that I can think of that don't enjoy space right off the bat. Who's the other one? Her and Doris, uh, Dr. Gerardi. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, Agnes yeah. I like Agnes. Yeah, great. Oh, mm-hmm. man. I just enjoy watching Allison Pill play basically any part. Me too. Uh, it's pretty much great. But Universal Translators, mm-hmm. what about when they do not work? Oh, there's interesting ways they don't. I mean, that happened often in Enterprise, of course. Sure. Sure, it was a great narrative device for them. But something that comes to mind for me is... Rai and Jiri at Lunga. Rai of Luwani. Luwani under two moons. Jiri of Ubaya. Ubaya of Crossed Roads at Lunga. Lunga, her sky gray. Rai and Jiri at Lunga. Rai and Jiri at Lunga. I know one of both of our favorite episodes. Oh, gosh. Darmok has got to be one of the greatest Star Trek. One of the greatest single episodes of Star Trek. It sort of just encapsulates the idea of Star Trek. Absolutely, one yeah. yeah. And, and our theme communication. Yeah. Uh, now, for those of you who don't recall what Darmok is, is, is about right off the bat, this is an episode about an encounter between the Enterprise-D and the children of Tamar, who are... Uh, the Tamarians. Uh, a species that the, the, the Federation has met several times, but they've never been able to establish regular communications with. They can't even understand what they're saying for the most part. And so they've met them again at the planet Eladrell, which is way out in the far reaches of where the Federation ever goes. And have, because the Tamarians just take up a position there. And the Federation ends up sending the Enterprise out to meet them, I think. Uh, and then their first words to the Enterprise crew are Rai and Jiri at Lunga. And why the Universal Translator fails is because it's not a language gap between the Enterprise and the Tamarians. It's a communication gap. Oh, yeah, really well put. That's an excellent point, because they can get all the phonemes and the grammatical structures and the verbs and the nouns, but they still have Her no... Her sky gray, we know what a gray sky looks like. Yeah, but what the heck... Loani under two moons, actually, I mean, what does Data say here? The Temerian seems to be stating the proper names of individuals and locations. <laughs> Thanks, Data, for the tautological Thank statement. you, Mr. Data. Yeah. Uh, Ever insightful, as always. And, you know, so, I mean, Picard moves to what he would move to, right? Which is offering, what is it, a bilateral, a mutual non-aggression pact between our two peoples, possibly leading to a trade agreement and cultural interchange. Does this sound like a reasonable course of action to you? Dave, that's one of the funniest things you've ever seen. <laughs> the Demarians love it. <laughs> just, you know, it, rem- it reminds me, you know, the ancient Greeks, you know where the ancient Greeks had this, this word, barbaros, mm. from which we get our word barbarian. Mm-hmm. And what they meant by that were people who barbared, right? Because everybody I've been known to barbar on occasion. Everybody that didn't speak Greek was basically just going bar 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 bar
Look at them. They're just making all kinds of funny noises <laughs> that don't mean a damn thing. Why don't they just say what they mean? Oh, these crazy people. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so if we pick up with the Temerians, oh, do you want to be Dathan or the other Temerian? Oh, oh you, you're Dathan. Oh, thank you. You're a Dathan, if, a poet captain, if I've ever known one. Oh my god, our third host is starting to stir. <laughs> yes, I have a, we have also have a three-week-old co-host as well. Yes. Didn't have a lot to say in the early beginning of the podcast, but... Mm-hmm. Wait till we get talking about Kalis, then she just won't, then she'll just be all, all, all talk. She loves Kayla. she's a good Klingon child. Mm-hmm. Yes, you can hold a ballot already, can't you? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I think we're good. Wait, maybe we're not. Hold on. What's up, baby? You good? You want to go back to Steep? So we're going to recite this initial dialogue between Dathan and his number one, and then try to translate it. (laughs) And see how that goes. Okay. So right after Picard offers, you know, the sort of bilateral non-aggression pact, the Tamerians laugh, and then uh, Dathan's number one comments, Kadir beneath Momote. The River Tamar in winter. Impressions number one. (laughs) (laughs) Um... So there, they, Picard and Riker have a bit of an exchange. They appear confused. Dathan is looking at the view screen. Oh. Incoming transmission. Hello. And Dathan intones, Shaka, when the walls fell. Darmok. Darmok. Ryan Jiri at Lunga. Shaka, when the walls fell. Zima at Anzo. Zima and Bakor. Darmok at Tanagra. Shaka! Mirab, his sails unfurled. Darmok! Mirab! Timur! The river Timur! And at this, Dathan takes his AIDS dagger and his owner, holds them out. Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra. Okay. So let's do what the uh, Universal Translator cannot and try to translate this. Mm-hmm. So first we have Ryan Jiri at Lunga. Mm-hmm. Two people and a place. And a clue to what Darmok and Jalad is going to be about, right? I like it that they begin with this other story that is, again, a, a, a character and character at place. Mm-hmm. You know? And I guess that's sort of like the beginning of any story. Sure. Sure. Yeah, that, that, that's fair enough. Gandalf and Frodo at the Shire. Yeah. Gandalf and Bilbo at the Shire. Set scene. Precisely, yeah. Yeah, really, it's it's almost like the title of the story, but it's it's essential character as well. Here's here's how this one starts out. And then we give more information. Rye of Loani. Loani under two moons. And maybe that's some condition that's befallen Loani. Maybe that's a characteristic. A time of year. Maybe. Maybe it's easy to see both moons from where Loani is you know, geographically on the planet. Jiri of Ubaya, a different person from a different place. Mm-hmm. Ubaya of Crossroads at Lunga. Ubaya of Crossroads at Lunga. 
it seems to put Lunga and Ubaya closer together mm-hmm. uh, than Luwani mm-hmm. and Ubaya, or Luwani and Lunga, you might say. Uh, so this might be a meeting of two people, one of whom is closer to their sort of home base than the other. And the crossroads could be Dathan sees that his civilization was moving in this direction. Uh-huh. And the Federation or Picard or the ship that he's come across mm-hmm. is moving in this direction, and this is the crossroads between the two societies. Sure. So absolutely. it's just like, here's where we meet. Let's see if we can work this out. Well, it would make sense with the general kind of town you put at a crossroads, right? I mean, towns that are situated on or near crossroads or major highways tend to be, if you look back, say, in Earth hotels and gas street, stations. Hotels got market towns, right? Uh, or, or or way sites. Mm-hmm. And so this is a meeting at a way site, but what kind of meeting is it? I mm-hmm. think that's what we get in that last sentence, Munga for Sky Gray. But I mean, what do you make of it? Uncertainty. Uncertainty, okay. It's not a sunny day. It's not a stormy day. It's, the sky is right. gray. It, it could, could go, go either, either way. way. Yeah. And and then we have the sort of the bookend, Ryan Jiri. Lunga. So here we are. <laughs> now we understand what the situation is. Exactly. At Lunga. And then the next thing. They Kadir say, beneath Momote. Yeah, with this following laughter. Mm. Right? Uh, I, I'm. Uh, Picard was being ridiculous. Fair. <laughs> uh, Cultural interchange. I mean, what is he going on? <laughs> what kind of story is that? What is this? Uh, but yeah, I mean, Kadir beneath Momote sounds like some sort of. You know, it's it's like he's saying, you know, huh, Keystone Cops or something, you know, <laughs> and and so he's he's sort of commenting on what kind of humor he's finding here. Uh, it that's what it feels like to me, because his boss then turns around and says, "The River Tamar and Winter basically like, be stop quiet. it, yeah. shut up, be quiet." That's enough of that. Yeah, he's like, they might understand what you're saying right now. Yeah, well, Whoa. they're at least gonna get your laughter, <laughs> yeah. face. And, you know, the, the, this, the script indication here is that wipes the smiles off their faces. Mm-hmm. So I think we get a clear sense of what's what the dynamic is, even if we don't know what the story of the River Tamark is at this point. And then Shaka when the walls fell. Mm. Dharma. I mean, Shaka when the walls fell reads to me as though they're implying something like the biblical story of Jericho. You know, yes, he's trying to uh, remind him of something that, if they don't tread carefully in this moment, he's indicating something bad could potentially happen, mm-hmm. unless we do this absolutely right. <clears throat> like, this is more important than it may seem. Yeah, and so he suggests his course of action, which is just a one-word paragraph, Darmok. And and so to, uh, his, 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 his uh, first officer, the, the indication here again is aghast, Darmok? Ryan, Jiri, at Lunga. You know, we're not there yet. We're still at uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Let's not make any decision about how we want to proceed just yet. You don't want to be Darmok. He's, he's like, Darmok involves, cons- that, you know, doing Darmok involves considerable risk. Yeah. Uh, Ryan, Jiri, at Lunga, we at least play our cards a little closer to the chest here. Mm-hmm. Now, look at how many metaphors we've been using. Cards close to the chest. Mm-hmm. All, you know, just in our conversation here, you know, we're not that far from the Temerians, but we just know our metaphors really well. No, I really just like hope, they do. I really hope they updated the Universal Translator after this. Oh, you'd hope so, eh? Whole new—that'd be a whole new field of study, just trying to update new that algorithm. Too. Yeah, 
And so Dathan responds again with Shaka when the walls fell, which I think means, no, that's not going to work. Like, we're just, we can't stay there. Yeah. Then Zima at Anzo. Zima and Bakor. Yeah. What do you think he's suggesting there? Well, I think Shaka and the walls fell also indicates failure. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems some alternate plan for a meeting. Yeah, it almost looks like he's trying to seed more doubt in Dathan's mm-hmm. mind. That's probably a really bad case scenario. Zima oh, also, I see what you're saying. He's like, know, what if it turns out like y- this? Yes, exactly. I was wondering. <clears throat> like, whether... like, beyond even Shaka and the walls fell, which mm-hmm. could be failure. He's just like, yes, and beyond Shaka and the walls fell, what if mm-hmm. <laughs> Zima at Anzo? Mm-hmm. It could go like, that way. Yeah, you want to go and that way. In that sense, that Tamarian's role very closely mirrors Worf's dialogue later in the scene, where in his analysis, he says, a contest perhaps between champions, our captain against theirs. You know, even the, the shape of his dialogue. A battle of champions, yeah. Exactly, right? Like his dialogue is very is very stylized in that moment. A contest between champions, our captain against theirs. It almost mirrors the way the Temerians are speaking, and his role really much mirrors Riker's as well. Where he's just, he's clearly this whole time is just trying to protect his captain, like mm-hmm. Riker with "You can't go on away mission, Captain." Yeah, like, it's very dangerous. Precisely, yeah. Showing like the similarities between like these crews seem very similar, and they just can't mm-hmm. quite communicate with each other. Well, and they have an ethos of going out and trying to meet, right? But you can only imagine the frustration of these Temerians, where. They keep trying and trying and trying to meet, one assumes, other cultures. And either get attacked or ridiculed or just nothing, and they go their separate ways. Um, they're, I, I think that this... this Ryan Jiri at Lunga. Exactly. They're just, they're just always at Ryan Jiri at Lunga. They can't stay there. Shaka when the walls fell. And so... It's almost like Dathan's had enough of it. He's yeah, had he too many of no. these. And so he says, Zima and he says, Darmok at Tanagra. You know, that's where we are. I'm Darmok at Tanagra. We're Darmok at Tanagra. To which his number one freaks out instantly. Shaka. He's like, no, 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 no. Marab, mm-hmm. let's get out of here. He's just like, you're his thinking that kind of stuff? Unfurled. Let's just get out of here now. <laughs> exactly. And he just kind of, you know, Darmok. And he's like, no, 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 Marab, let's go. To which uh, Dathan, of course, is going to reply, Tamark, the River Tamark, discussion over. We're done. We're doing what I say we're going to do because I'm the captain. No, Mr. Wolf. Exactly. He takes out his two daggers as though to seal the point of this metaphor, right? And mm-hmm. it says, Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra. Yeah. Which is really the, 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 the name of I the am Darmok. He is Jalad. Eladrel is Tanagra. That's what we're doing here. Beam us down. Yeah. And then they, they kidnap Picard, right? Mm-hmm. And all of which, you know, taking out the knives, Worf comes to a perfectly reasonable conclusion. The, cha- you know, the Battle of Champions. Yeah, and Riker asking him, what the hell is going on here? It, it's all perfectly reasonable. And that's part of the challenge, right? That, that, just as you said, it's not a problem of language. It's a problem of communication. It's a problem of how to pass meaning and information across this peculiar barrier they found. But, you know, that to me raises an interesting question. And let me just drop this as like a what if. Oh, it's what if time. Let's. This is our, our inaugural what if. What if Hoshi Sato had been on that mission to Eladrell? 
along with the episode of Blasted. We were talking about Star Trek shorts earlier. <laughs> it's about 12 minutes, folks. <laughs> six minutes. Oh, six minutes. Captain, I think I've got it. Okay, oh, gee. <laughs> it's a fun joke, but I think that what they do lose in, in sort of giving that translational capacity to the computer is when the computer can't cut it, the bridge crew have profound difficulties dealing with things that are procedurally very similar, but proceeding from perspectives that are different enough and, and sort of diametrically opposed enough that they're, they just don't make sense to each other. I can just imagine Data saying, the Temerians seem to be stating proper names of individuals and locations, and Hoshi being like, oh, well, <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Hoshi was very... Uh, very sarcastic. Don't mind to him. He's positronic. <laughs> Hoshi was ahead of her time. It's true. I'm a big Hoshi fan. But I mean, She's my favorite <laughs> thing about the Mirror Universe, too, actually. Oh, man. That's true. For Sato. The Sato dynasty should never have fallen. Well, controversial opinion. Hot take. <laughs> Hot take. Here's the clickbait. Yep. <laughs> what are we going to call this episode? <laughs> Sato Dynasty should never happen. Pro-Sato Diatribe. Mm. <laughs> Don't be statistic. That could work for the drumheads or this. <laughs> Madman declares Sato supremacy. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Tune in next time. <laughs> All of these things will never be addressed. Again. <laughs> anyway, back to the, the sort of main point. One of the things that I think gives Hoshi a lot of strength is that they, in terms of being a translator, is that they do a lot of initial encounters, right? Like, she has to actually practice that getting a language really fast from pretty much the first episode, where she, you know, just abysmally fails at attempting to talk to a Klingon, <laughs> for the most part. Well, and, you know, I mean, in the sense that she would have to practice... Uh, first contact, just like the rest of the crew would. I think it kind of gives you a a kind of glimpse of what the Federation ethos is and where it comes from. And it does come, I think, in large measure from April 5th, 2063. Hmm. You know, when the character of first contact between Vulcans and humans, that it was contact with an interested group who wanted to help humans develop their warp technology, but also sort of help them generally now that they were going to become members of the galactic community. That sets a pattern that is sort of like a foundational narrative for the Federation, and that they reproduce um, as a custom or almost a cultural ritual every time they meet somebody new. Just like, as we you know joked about earlier in the Mirror Universe, that event turning out very differently conditioned a whole different series of events that turns out in an altogether more horrific fashion. A whole new world <laughs> of horrors and tortures and genocide. <laughs> um, <laughs> no flying carpets in the mirror universe. As you can tell, we're a band. <laughs> so musical so musical but yeah you know that i guess what i'm saying is you know the, the, the character of that first contact 
is something that humans as a species end up wanting to repeat, and it drives them so hard that they end up being instrumental in the creation of the Federation, I think, on partially at least on that basis. TNG hit on First Contact a lot. Mm-hmm. As you said, the episode First Contact. Oh, yeah. With the uh, Malkorians. Oh, yes. Not to be confused with a Malgorian, a three-headed Malgorian. Oh, yeah. Not not the same thing at all. So indecisive. Uh, yeah, it's true. And uh, interesting, Malkor 3, right? So they're in the same, in a similar position in a way in their solar system to what Earth would have been. And I think there's there's parallels to our own sense of looking around even at this moment in our history and asking, are we alone? What does it mean if we discover, and indubitably that we're not? That episode it almost feels exactly like the reaction our planet would have. Hmm. How do you mean? Well, in a best case scenario, because the the leader of Malcor, mm-hmm. very reasonable individual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's so, had an opportunity in a, in, a, in a number of scenes early on in the episode to show how he's both sensitive to who his people are, but recognizes the mo- the kind of transitional moment they're in. You know, he seems to consider the short term consequences, mm-hmm. but certainly appreciate the long term effects of his decisions. Sure, that question. Even how just going to develop. As a culture sort of moving forward. Yeah, even just yeah. keeping that scientist lady, I forget her name, but mm-hmm. keeping her program going despite his advisor, who is his main opposition, basically, yeah. in this episode, his wishes. The security minister. Right? The security minister, yeah. Um, yeah, and he's, uh, he's an interesting character. Again, you know, he, and, and I think the war theorist and the security minister kind of array themselves on either side mm. of the container, in a sense, that is their... Prime Minister, President guy. You can tell we're really awesome on the fine details of these things. Um, you know, what's his face? And, and, and the other guy. But yeah, his, his, um, the Prime Minister sensed that uh, but this we're, is really We're happy. pinpointing razor sharp on those wharf quotes. That's true. <laughs> it's like, what sticks with you? Makes for a simpler bumper sticker. Just WWWD. What would work? What would work do? Yeah. Firefaces. <laughs> <laughs> Ask Duras. <laughs> That's communication for you. Well, I guess what I'm getting at with the similarities to the reaction today's society might have, or at least in the ideal circumstances, is, mm-hmm. is the security minister's reaction seems like the opposition such an encounter would have now. Which is let's lock down. For national let's security. not have any contact or limited contact. Mm-hmm. The kind of it would create a public panic, thing. especially coming from the Malkorian perspective of we're the center of the universe as we mm-hmm. know it. Which I think we, as a species, in some ways have symbolically changed, uh, but I think in some ways mythologically or like psychologically, we still think we're pretty much the center of the universe a lot of the time. Yeah. <laughs> But also leads me to my favorite part of that episode, when Picard is talking to the leader of the Malkorians. And he tells Picard how his daughter asks him each night how his day was. And Picard asks him, was like, well, what will you tell her tonight? And he says, well, I'll tell her that when I woke up today, I was the leader of the universe as I knew it. And today I learned that I'm just a voice in a chorus. 
but I think it was a good day. And I guess I'm being very idealistic about our society as it is right now. But I would like to think that that's how our leaders would address it. Well, you know, there are there are interesting. I mean, there are groups in the world today that are intent on uh, realizing that agenda. You know, well, I think the CE five movement and some other groups who want to try and develop protocols around how to look for peaceful contact with whoever our neighbors might be. And, you know, it, you can you can uh, evaluate the, the quality of those groups' missions or statements or ethos, as you will, but I think it's interesting that that kind of a push is is literally happening on our planet today. I wonder if there wouldn't have been movements like that on Mount Core 3 as well that would have been understood to be pretty fringe, you know? Well, and I think what also helps that first contact in this episode is Picard and I would hope that such a thing would happen with us today is he did approach the scientist first, the warp scientist and she played the intermediary between her leader and Picard. Well, I wonder if that wouldn't be one of the standard moves, right? In, in a sense she she takes on the symbolic role of Zephram Cochran, right? So they always, they want to they always mm-hmm. want to be the person to meet Zephram Cochran in a way, you know? But also, what's her step in Wolf? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> that's an idea for an original tune right there. Just call it "What's Her Step." What's her step in Wolf? Yeah, man. To be continued. We'll get yeah. back to you on that one. To be determined at a later date. Mm-hmm. We'll try to snap our cute fingers and will as many of these things into reality as we can. Willing things into reality by imagining them out ahead of time. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what else is the is the conceit of far beyond the stars, but the communication of a hope for. Something mm-hmm. better in the future that, if the episode is to be read correctly, realizes itself in a dynamic, non-linear fashion. Far beyond the stars. We plan to revisit that, my favorite episode, in a supplementary episode that we plan to do from time to time about different episodes, actors, characters that we feel could use a little extra focus. Garrick, for example. Simple Taylor. Well, maybe not. You're right. You're right. But speaking about Taylor's mm-hmm. it, it it does it does make me think about uh, other forms of communication. Mm-hmm. And two that that in particular, I think Deep Space Nine does maybe with a more finely wrought image than um, some of the others manage to do, just because it has that emphasis on a kind of serial storytelling. You know, just you know. Deceit and, and temporality. Well, speaking of Deep Space Nine, this is probably a good place to declare our biases. <laughs> so, Dave, yeah, why don't you tell myself and the listeners your favorite character, show, and movie? Oh, see, I now I, favorite character is is Picard. Uh, I, I Captain, love- my Captain. I, yes, exactly. I love many characters very close to as much as I love Jean-Luc Picard, but he's my captain. Ultimately, he's he's my captain. And, you know, we've talked about this, and like every time we talk about it, I kind of waffle one way or the other. Because, you know, I my first Star Trek series really was TNG. And the first episode, well. like the first moment of TNG I remember the most was Worf being stabbed by those 18th century pig soldiers. <laughs> uh, Q gives Riker Q powers. 
and he declares himself a field marshal and all sorts of weird things. Mr. Wharf, eat any good books today? <laughs> Micro brain. <laughs> oh, man. But, you know, and, and it, I think when I was first encountering it, that episodic quality of TNG hit me right where I needed to be. Because I could, like, chew on each story as an individual piece. And I remember... Such a I, good entry point. but it's... Absolutely. I even, I lost the thread of Deep Space Nine after a while. Because I was... You know, in a high school, starting in a university, I just wasn't, I wasn't able to keep up with it in the same way. And nevertheless, when I came back to it years later, I really started getting kind of in a concerted way trying to understand the whole logic of the thing. TNG and Deep Space Nine end up being very, very balanced in my mind. Because there are particular episodes of TNG that they're very different. Sit for me as some of the real heights, like Darmok, or Best of Both Worlds, or Chain of Command, or a number of, there's a number of episodes. Tin Man, for instance. Drumhead, you know. Measure but, of a Man. Um, oh, Measure of a Man. Yeah, absolutely, right? But on the other side... Lower Decks. Oh, Lower Decks is a great episode. I love that episode. And, you know, in a certain way, Anson Rowe, which is almost like the premise for Deep Space Nine, hmm. right? Right? Uh, you know, put that together with Best of Both Worlds, and you essentially have the, the beginning of the... I think they had tried to cast her originally. Yeah. And they ended up going with Nona Visitor because they needed another really strong person to be playing that, that Bajoran presence, right? But, you know, Deep Space Nine's emphasis on being in one place and really getting into the life of that place, I found I've appreciated much more on second and third and fourth and nth viewings. Mm -hmm. Because of the way it's, it builds and sort of contains itself both at the beginning and the end. You know, that sense of non-linearity that stretches itself out over a determinate number of episodes. And then it's just Star Trek VI. Star Trek VI? Yeah, I mean, come on. Undiscovered Country? Yeah, Undiscovered Country. That's, I still think that's that. Hit you right in the Shakespeare. Oh, man. <laughs> Chancellor Gorkon. He's just, it's, uh, it's... Well, Chang was the Shakespeare uh, yeah, quoter. Yeah. yeah, that's true. But you've never heard Shakespeare until you've heard it in the original Klingon. That's true. Hmm? And honestly, you've rarely seen a Klingon until you've seen one played by Christopher Plummer. I mean, true. And it's like opera. You've never heard opera until you've heard it in Klingon. Surely you must know one theme from Maktu and Milota. Hello. Ah. Sorry, Dave and I spontaneously sing Milota every now and then. It's from our fortune and egg bar days. Yeah, it is true. <laughs> so how about for you? It doesn't hurt that I would watch the actor that plays my favorite character read a phone book. Benjamin Lafayette Sisko, father, warrior, gourmet chef. Emissary of the Prophets, but lifts his front leg when he winds up for a swing. From the broken and uncertain place we find him at the beginning of the series, to the elevated and ascended place that we leave him, it's just an amazing character journey, and I find him very relatable as well. Like, you must also find Picard. You remind me of Picard in a lot of ways, You're Dave. You're talking about my baldness, I think. <laughs> I wasn't no, going to go. I wasn't going to go. I wasn't going to go there. Thunder away there. I just love making ball jokes. Because <laughs> um, 
because Cisco is also bald. Oh, that's true. Well, really? eventually, eventually. <laughs> really? <laughs> well, honestly, in the Star Trek future, everybody would have to be willingly at that point. That's true. The medical technology is there to cure that's baldness. True. I'm sure they've got it. Yeah. Like, that's a hypo spray. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just that sound. It's so satisfying. Oh, God. They make it from Beatles. <laughs> it's not fun for the Beatles. <laughs> My Beatles snuff days are done. Well, it's hard on it's hard on the nose. And the I Beatles. Mean, well, when you came back from Perenginar, you were kind of a wreck. That's uh, why I only lasted two semesters. Too much Beatles snuff. <laughs> <laughs> two grubs of plenty. But no, Deep Space Nine though. Oh yeah, and film. Oh, I'm assuming series is Deep Space Nine. Series is Deep Space Nine. Like you, Dave, I started with TNG and then went to Voyager and did find it difficult to get into Deep Space Nine um, back in those days, probably because it didn't lend itself well to syndicated television. But what it did have was the perfect balance in continuity storytelling, being able to tell that ongoing story over several seasons, but doing it with more or less freestanding episodes. And of course, the great character journeys undertaken by main characters, guest characters, <laughs> and even some one-off characters. That show just really kept building on itself. But, you know, one of the things for me that, that set apart... Oh, we didn't get to a film, sorry. Star Trek Six, Of course. The rationalist. Logic dictates. But, no, I mean, thinking about this, the, this, sort of, this sort of notion of biases that you were talking about, that's really almost where we begin DS9 as a series. Mm -hmm. You know, with... The biases towards linear and nonlinear time. Well, and existence. then Cisco's biases about Picard and Starfleet. Mm, oh, well, yeah. You know, he's he's developed a really hardened attitude against those two pieces of his life. Because Picard, whether he likes it or not, is a piece of his life since he absolutely destroyed it at 1359 in terms of being what he was, you know. Have you ever been a stranger to yourself? Many, many times. <laughs> oh, what a... We're just going to have to do some serious talk about Picard at some point. Holy crap. As a tear rolls down your cheek. Oh, I have rarely wept more at the beginning of a se television series than at the beginning of Picard. You know, the beginning with Blue Sky. Oh, yeah. oh man. Smiling at me. Nothing but blue sky. Do, do I see? Oh, man. Yeah, it just because uh, I don't want the game to end. What a wonderful way to begin something, you know? Mm -hmm. You're stalling, Captain. <laughs> <laughs> and it is, it's, it's, it, it's a big circle in that sense, you know? That first series of Picard draws a big circle, but the beginning of DS9 also charts the beginning arc of a circle mm. that takes seven seasons to close, you know? That sense of the atemporality of the prophets, and they're just total bafflement at the thought that anyone could live without a full transparent knowledge of their own existence from one end to the other. It, the, it's delightful. The bad things could happen. I mean, anything could happen. 
Yeah. Why would you choose to live in that man? Play baseball. Hit a home run. You could strike out. You could explode a pigeon. <laughs> Part of me wishes that had happened in the Deep Space Nine episode, but that may have been a bit silly for their aim. It legitimized the analogy. Mm-hmm. It did legitimize He's like, it. baseball, anything could happen. I'm like, well, you know, quite a few things can happen, and then pow! Yeah. It's like, oh, you're right, anything could happen. Yeah, what was the pitcher's name again? Randy Johnson. Randy Johnson. Go search it on the YouTube, folks. Yep. Randy Johnson, Pigeon, will probably get you there. <laughs> oh, man. It happens fast, but it's amazing. But yeah, that, that sort of submission to uncertainty, that living in the in the place of Ryan Jiri at Lunga, with Lunga mm. sky gray, is in a certain sense the condition of mortal being, as as Cisco is expressing it in that way. Well, and then he finally convinces them of the possibility of a linear existence mm -hmm. so then they think he's a liar and they've got the ace up their sleeve yeah <laughs> yeah okay you could live a linear existence but you're talking to us here but you exist here over here and here is a set of destroyed quarters on fire on the uss saratoga as it's just about to be well, abandoned. To which he says, no, that's not linear, but I can't find a way to live without her. Mm -hmm. and they're like, well, then, yeah, that's not linear. Yeah, that's not linear. And, you know, it's in that moment that he has to accept the fact of that horrible trauma. Because I think he spent the last three years not really... Well, blaming Picard. Yeah, and somehow all blaming of that lets him not, not accept this is quite real, that he's quite still alive. And you can only imagine the kind of inflex of guilt he has about his relationship with his son through that. Uh, what kind of father is he being when he's living in that one moment where he was choosing between putting his son over here and going for his wife under a bulkhead. You know, what a, what a horrendous tearing of a self and a traumatic moment. He declares his condition in that moment where they're like, we have to go. She's, she's gone. We have to go. He's like, mm -hmm. well, I can't leave her. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Which is yeah. pretty much what he says to the prophets. Yeah, yeah, and he's he's sort of been there ever since. Mm. Uh, Just a great beginning to a character. Oh yeah, yeah, and you know it's it's not every sci-fi show, let alone any other show, that begins with. You know, let's just let's just throw eternity and time in as our big question right off the top, and then now we'll get the ball rolling. <laughs> Yeah, you know, you've met the gods, so now now let's start the story. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's in some ways a real crazy way to start things, but it's beautiful because it gives us this sort of grand scope within which all of these other actions are held, and so many of the actions on this sort of, you might call it the kind of level of the promenade, mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to inside the wormhole, are so shot through. They're like everything is a mixed bag, you know? Yeah, there's not there's not a lot of uh, black and white clarity in Deep Space Nine as a series that way, and I think that's important, right? Because you're sort of in the mud, you're in the trenches, whenever you're not inside the wormhole with the prophets. You know, another uh, form of communication that comes up in Star Trek a lot is telepathic and empathic communication, mm. and an episode that comes to mind I know is a favorite of yours, oh. Tin Man. Oh, Tin Man. Yep. Where we have Tan Elbrin. Oh, yeah. I believe I have that right. Yeah. Tan Elbrin. 
Yep, yep. Former patient of Deanna Troy's. Yep. Who suffers from a, what is it? His condition is that he was born fully telepathically enabled. So from, from no age, he was constantly experiencing everyone around him all the time. It's like a sort of reverse Bendai syndrome almost, you know, which is something Sarek and Vulcan, of course, suffered. But the episode, yeah, the episode, I, 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 I love it because he's so alone. You know, Tam Elburn is so alone in the sort of deluge of selves, you know, that are available to him. And bombarded with. Yeah, because nobody's quite like him that way anywhere he goes. I mean, how many people on Beta Z are, are born like him? Not a huge number. One, one no, of they don't seem to be a huge number that are even fully telepathic. Yeah, exactly, right? Um, I mean, Waxana's particularly gifted, mm. right? Yeah, the lovely thing is it's sort of these two solitudes that are headed toward each other. I love the moment where Deanna realizes that Tam Elbrin's been in communication with Tin Man on some level for hours or days, and they're still light years away from this creature. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's an order of ability operating that far exceeds even Tam Elbrin's capacities, but is nevertheless kind of drawing him like a magnet, because I think he... It's this study in sort of how we get to real intimacy with something else, right? Like how we get to real interchange with another self that disarms us and actually ends up being healing because you know i mean tin man's lost so much and has been alone for so long given its lifespan and so has tam elbrun on his relatively you know comparatively minuscule lifespan that they're they're curiously fitted to each other Mm -hmm. you know yeah, it's just, it's just, it's a really, I find it a really poetic episode that way. And Tam Elburn seems to be communicating with Tin Man on a telepathic and empathic level. Sure. Whereas Deanna is just empathic. Mm-hmm. But she does a similar thing with the squid like entity. Oh, in Powerpoint. Firepoint. Sure. And, and she, and interestingly, she again, when she's closer to it, is able to discern more. Mm-hmm. It's not quite the touch telepathy of Vulcans, but they really utilize her her range very effectively over the course of the series. But, Vulcans seem to have a very limited non-passive telepathy. Mm-hmm. Takes a mind meld. Sure, unlike with, say, Betazoids, where it's more like a faculty, like hearing or yeah. smelling. They've got an interesting history with that, right? Because it, it's implied, and in some sources stated that the deeper history of Vulcan before the age of Surak is one of tremendous violence, but also tremendous psychic or psionic potential, right? The Stone of Gaul, for instance, which shows up in... in and interchange. Uh, yeah. And the, the, the ways in which warlords on Vulcan were able to weaponize their own psionic potential both in terms of... The psionic uh, resonator. Yeah, exactly, right? And, and, and in terms of sort of purity tests of their own followers, where they had to undergo long mind melds to ensure that they were still loyal, for instance, shows that I, you know, I think the, the Vulcans end up having a kind of taboo distaste for psionics for a long time that we see just beginning to thaw and crack over the course of the Enterprise series. Well, it's such a more intimate thing for them because it takes such a more personal contact to to do, Mm -hmm. like with Sarek and Picard. Sure. But that's something it would appear the Betazoids can't do, is have that deep 
exchange of information and feeling and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that yeah. a mind meld does. I mean, the mind meld may be one of those closer things that humanoids may ever feel to the great link, which itself is, seems to be a kind of telepathy or at least dissolution of the barriers of the cell. Or a collective. Mm-hmm. That again requires contact, physical contact, whereas the collective, the big collective, doesn't necessarily require physical contact. As we see in the first contact film when Picard has nightmares and visions of the Borg and hears them at various points in his mind. As well as in the real most recent series of Picard, right? Or with 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 I Borg and and uh, the drone Hugh. Telepathy and empathy is just one way we've seen Star Trek try to interact with very unusual entities. Mm-hmm. There's the crystalline entity, sure, that they began to communicate with with vibration. Yeah, and on the very edge of telepathy and empathy, there's the Horta on uh, Jaina Six in Devil in the Dark. I like to imagine a scenario where the crystalline entity came to Earth just before the Vulcans made first contact, and Zephram Cochran played Steppenwolf for the crystalline entity. <laughs> just heard it and turned left <laughs> out of the system. <laughs> Not going there. Well, and, and, you know, there's, there's the, you know, the crystalline entity is a really interesting creature in that regard because, well, we don't really know the material structure of the crystalline entity, but creatures of that silicon based like i think maybe i would i would assume so uh well that takes us in a whole different direction which is home soil right another silicon based crystalline style entity where we have uh, many parts make up the whole form of life well another collective of a sort mm-hmm. right? and there you know we actually were stretching the definitions of life to include sources that we tend not to understand as being life-bearing, right? Silicon as opposed to carbon or organic um, chemistry molecules uh, as being peculiarly suited for that or not universally. That's what an ugly bag of mostly water would say. It is what an ugly bag of mostly water would say. You know, there are people on on the sort of spectrum of scientific work on the notion of life today who are attempting to produce a widened theory of what life would be. And they, they, they use the term life, hmm. L-Y-F-E, uh, to try and identify this. They're trying to, as opposed to restricting what we would call alive to meeting a high number of basic criteria, what they're trying to think of is the, the sort of minimal basic criteria under which we would understand something. Similar to or beyond Dr. Crusher's description in that episode? Well, it's a good question, because I think they've done work on things like viruses and trying to understand whether we understand a virus as alive or dead. Or well, alive or just inanimate, mm-hmm. yeah, as opposed to, I apologize, alive and dead are kind of a diet. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, the definition she ends up having to use, which is what, reproducing... Uh, intake and, and emission of, of energy and, and, yeah. and other you know, transformation uh, and some kind of social complexity, mm-hmm. which is what they develop, um, fits pretty well mm-hmm. and would reasonably well attach to the crystalline entity as well, right? Because the moment they begin to make the, the correct kind of vibrations toward it, it's perfectly happy to stop and communicate with it because it recognizes them as communicating. You know, who knows if it wasn't just going by things the way we might go by scum in a pond and not really think of it as peculiarly alive 
or having its own purposes, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, they're just so different in scale, it's kind of ludicrous. You know, we haven't talked much about the Wi-Fi of the Star Trek uh, mm. world, which is uh, subspace, I think. Might be a terrible analogy, but I'm going to go with it. <laughs> All right, go for it. Run with it. Subspace. Very important. Yeah. It's what allows the communication to happen faster than travel happens in Star Trek. That sure. if warp travel traveled faster than light, messages would not be able to exceed that unless they're moving through subspace. Yeah, sort of an infinite manifold, right? Mm. A, a little kind of pocket, vibrational realms almost. I think somewhere I saw a description that, you know, whereas, say, the top speed of, say, Voyager when it left Earth would have been warp 9.975. Mm-hmm. Um, Very fast. Subspace messages would technically travel at something like warp 9.9999996. So about a million or two million times the speed of light. Without the help uh, of subspace relays. Yeah. Yeah. And those will, again, like repeaters or Wi Fi repeaters, pick up the signal, amplify it, and, and send it on again. But yeah, you know, when, when for instance, in the balance of terror, they're discussing how long it would take to send a message back to uh, Earth and receive a reply in terms of figuring out what to do. They say it's something like two days, but that's two days over something like 35 or 40 light years, which is hugely fast. And in the extreme case of Voyager, where there's such a great distance from home, even subspace communication would take years. Well, where they're, what, 75 years at maximum warp from home, their subspace signals would have a hard time propagating. And one would assume they, without relays, they might well run out of juice and drop into normal space, right? Um, you know, until you tap into some erosion relays. Oh, man. It was a mild shock. He will recover. He will recover. <laughs> Uh, utter lack of remorse is delightful sometimes. So, um, infuriating in other episodes, but really delightful. Uh, but yeah, they really they have to tap into whole different infrastructures in order to find any way of communicating. You know, they use a mini wormhole at one point, right? What episode is that? They find a tiny, relatively stable wormhole, but not long-lasting. I think they can take some sensor reading. Eye of the Needle. Eye of the Needle, that's what it's called. They eventually managed to make contact with a Romulan commander. Yeah, Telic Ramor, played by Von Armstrong. Yeah, who, while initially cautious, I think ends up beaming aboard their ship briefly Mm -hmm. and agrees to take messages with him. But if I recall correctly, it was a kind of tragedy because they learn... Only later that they were speaking with him in a time displaced fashion. Twenty years in the past or something like that. And of course he dies before he can pass on the message. Right. But that's the episode to me that really gets across how far Voyager really is from home. Hmm. Where it's really space and time they have to travel through to get where they need to go in the time they need to get there. The 70 year journey obviously isn't feasible for most of them. Mm -hmm. Old man Captain Tuvok could be leading that crew (laughs) 70 years from now. But not many of the original crew would have have made it all the way there. First officer Naomi. They're always battling uh, Naomi Wildman. Yeah, Naomi Wildman. Subunit. (laughs) <laughs> Again, great seven of nine dialogue. 
Your new designation is three of five. It's <laughs> uh, a very well done child character. As well. Yeah. Uh, she's really great. She's great. I love her children's stories with uh, Neelix uh, on, on the holodeck. They're a wonderful way to... Flutter and Trevis? Yeah. But again, speaking about communication, they're a great way for them to try and interface the sort of mentality of a child and their sort of emotional and cognitive development with the reality of being stuck out, as you say, oh, a bobojillion miles from home and years beyond reckoning away from, you know, in terms of an individual lifetime, away from ever being close to it again. In some ways, it's, it's a very bleak <laughs> prospect. And they, they really lean into that in some episodes. We'll do a side episode on holodecks. Oh, God. And the shenanigans. <laughs> Why they should ensue. never be allowed on Starfleet ships. <laughs> basically more trouble than they were. Apparently the Ferengi invented holodecks. Huh. Mm, interesting. Mm. And sent the hole. Once you have their money, you never, never give, it give it back. Yeah. We'll bring that up in the first lesson of avoiding <laughs> internal destitution <laughs> for humans next episode. So, yeah, the the vagaries of subspace are both useful narratively, but they also, as you say, I mean, they, they illustrate the real depth that they're trying to communicate and grapple with in terms of, of time. Because time becomes as much a character as the void of space itself mm -hmm. in a lot of these stories. And, you know, time, time in other ways can function as both an adversary and a a sort of companion. I guess one of the things I'm thinking about there is, um, you know, the communications of culture. You know, the first time we meet the Ferengi is in the episode where we also see that the use of a Chinese finger trap and the representative of the Takan Empire showing up, right? This is an empire which has been gone for 600,000 years and they have to find some way to authenticate the passage of time to this gatekeeper, protector guy. And, you know, the, the, the possibility of those kind of vast gulfs of time being in play with, with them or the Iconians or, uh, you know, even that wonderful joke that in the beginning of Little Green Men where they say, you know, they've only been, you know, doing things for basically 5,000 years and they only invented credit <laughs> basically yesterday. <laughs> They went from inventing a monetary system to leading an intergalactic empire in half the time it took the Ferengi Alliance, and we had to buy our warp drive from who turned out to be the Breen. Exactly. Yeah. Right? Uh, so the, the um, yeah, the, the sense... What, that, what you're forgetting, Dave, is that long-term cultural advancement isn't nearly as important as short-term quarterly gains. Well, you know, if you're not a Resican... Well, Yes. They have no short-term quarterly gains <laughs> remaining. No, no <laughs> All more. they can do is play the long game. A beautiful Mexican melody. Bravo. Bravo. Was I clapping for myself? You'll never know, because this is a podcast. <laughs> Which, of course, we've been dancing around the episode, The Inner Light. Mm-hmm. One uh, another one of those great one-shot episodes. And the idea of communicating the entirety of a civilization 
so that it doesn't die with the planet. Mm-hmm. And how best to do that. Yeah, you know, we sent a Golden 78 out on Voyager 1. These guys encoded the lifetime of an individual. We went with classical music and genitalia. They went with live a lifetime in this society. Also genitalia. Because, <laughs> 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 you know, he has kids. But, uh, Fair. <laughs> Certainly not a way I looked at that episode before. <laughs> See, so many, so many situations in life can just be changed by saying, also, genitalia. I love the strings you can draw for me. Thank Dave. you. I'm highbrow and lowbrow all at once. I appreciate that. <laughs> but but as we see in that episode, it's certainly an effective method of doing that. Now, how well Picard can communicate that beyond himself is not clear, but I don't think that was their intention. That's a good question, yeah. Mind you, they find a particularly good candidate in John Picard who is a historian and archaeologist, as well as, at least at an amateur level, as well as being a Starfleet captain, right? They lucked out on that. You know, if they'd gotten the captain of that pack-led ship from season two, it would have been a different story. We make things go. We look for things to make us go. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the communication of a whole culture kind of hits close to home for me. You know, when I first went to university, I studied classics. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, Greek and Roman stuff, the ancient world, the Egyptians, the Hebrews, all that, you know, the whole complex of Mesopotamians, ancient cultures. The Temerians. And, you know, indeed, you know, they're, you know, uh, Ryan, Jiri, and Runga. Mm-hmm. Um, or perhaps, you know, Gilgamesh and Enkidu and Uruk. Um, <laughs> no, Uruk. Uruk. <laughs> anyway, uh, Distracting us with your puns. um, That stuff became very close to my heart in ways that I felt it began to come alive in some sense to me, you know? Uh, And the moments where I really feel successful in those studies are when I catch the real sense of what's happening in a story. You know, the way the Greeks will say, they wouldn't necessarily, you know, the ancient Greeks wouldn't say, he didn't come anywhere near me. They would say, he didn't come within far of me. Mm. When you can start to make that... He was switch, decently fair. Right? Mm. To to uh, how they measure things and how they count and all that kind of stuff, then uh, you really do begin to catch the flavor of an existence. You know, that for me is what the, the, is the beauty of learning languages. You know, it's, it's one thing to say, you know, I don't know what that is. But it's another thing at a time to say, non sono sicuro. I am not secure about that. It has a different, even though it ultimately translates to I'm not sure, I don't mm. know. It has a different timbre, a different flavor to it, you know? And that, that's often what I get from that episode in her life. Here's where I challenge you. Okay. To name a moment in Star Trek that comes to mind for you when you hear the theme communication mm. or the word communication. Um, a scene, an episode, a moment. Well, for... You know, as a bit of a bookend. Yeah, yeah. For me, one of the moments that strikes me for communication, and, you know, it's sort of funny, but the whole episode, in a certain way, is about communication, are just just watching uh, Jean-Luc Picard make those bizarre noises at the Shelly (laughs) Act. 
Ah, no, I just I love it because you can tell that that Stewart as an actor <laughs> seemed to enjoy himself. Right, he's sitting there going like, "I've delivered sonnets, I've Shakespeare, whatever," and he. Like he really gets to lean right into this utterly ludicrous thing, but the 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 tension in the crew when he finally has to do this thing is absolutely delightful, and it really you know captures that sense of like we're really out here trying to do it. What's yours? <laughs> I like yours. <laughs> Mine is how do you communicate something with somebody when you're not allowed to? And the answer to that is, Mr. Garrick, I believe I need to be measured for a new pair of pants. <laughs> One of my favorite scenes is that scene where they want to communicate the Klingon attack to the Cardassians, mm -hmm. the impending Klingon attack on Cardassia. And, of course, uh, they can't go against their allies, the uh, Klingons, so Cisco gets measured for a new pair of pants. <laughs> oh, Gar Elon Garrick, I mean, the subversion of communication, deception that he practices, the fact that he literally practices lying on warp of all people. <laughs> He's such a great character. You never wanted to join Starfleet. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> of course I didn't. I thought you knew that from the start, you could have said. I thought we were talking. <laughs> Doesn't that involve vigorous life? Yeah. What were you talking about? <laughs> oh, I think I have everything I need. <laughs> well, I think that's bringing our maiden voyage in for a landing here. This flight seems to be coming to a conclusion, so I think it remains only to... Uh, Time to settle in for a refit. That's right. Let, uh, let my co-pilot here whet your appetite for next time. Next episode, we will discuss time travel in all its many forms and incarnations in Star Trek. Our recent experience with this time loop will no doubt improve invaluable. We'll never discuss this time loop again. <laughs> if it's the right kind, we'll forget it. However, tune in next time. We will also review the recently released comic, Too Long a Sacrifice, a DS9 comic. I will give a lesson to Dave on how to avoid eternal destitution. Excellent. We hope we've communicated our love of Star Trek with some level of coherency, and uh, you stick with us as we work out our technical difficulties and pull into space dock for a burying sweep or two. Well, on that note, let's uh, let's wind down our trip for today. We'll uh, give the engines time to cool and uh, time for some resupply and refit and transmission. Where's Vic? Vic! Anybody
believed in me. Yes, it's only a canvas sky hanging over a muslin tree. But it wouldn't be make-believe if you believed in me. Without your love, it's a honky-tonk parade. Without your love, it's a melody played in a penny arcade. It's a Barnum and Bailey world, just as phony as it can be. But it wouldn't be make-believe if you believed in me. Just as phony as it can 